Welcome back, everyone. This is Dr. Scott. I am here with my bestie. Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. Hi, everybody. We are really cool. Really cool. Yes, we are. We are. So cool. Oh, we my are gosh. So cool. We're really <laughs> happy to be back. This is, uh, Shiloh just reminded me why this is so significant. This is our 50th episode. Wow. Um, yeah, for us, that's a big deal. I mean, it is. There's a lot of people like it that have way more episodes, but that most podcasts are going about 40 minutes and we're, we're doing about three times that much in our episodes. So yeah, that's true. I did like read, dog years. Like I know years. Uh, totally. I did read something this last week that said people are listening to shorter in shorter chunks and to shorter podcasts. So, Hey, do what you got to do. People turn us off and come back to us. If you... <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Like I, I get it. Um, it's, you know, did we just have a lot to say about the subject and we want to do the deep dive, but I have to say, like, I'm really impressed by some of the shorter podcasts, especially the narrative ones that really, you know, they're telling you a story and they've spent a lot of time getting it down to that succinct 35 minutes. Whereas I think we're doing something that's a little bit more broad. Exactly. As well as diving. You know, we'll dive down a couple of times, but we're also kind of tr- trying to cover some big issues. And as you and I work on a future project, we realize that what we're doing right now is the easier one. We just yes. vomit at the mouth everything. <laughs> and to cut, to cut stuff down is really hard. Yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. So look, this week we're going to do something after three episodes of uh, child sex endangerment photos, not porn, <laughs> just gross. <laughs> We both needed a bit of a Silkwood shower, and we started with something. We have a, a, a great topic, which is uh, pursuits and how they're portrayed in the media and how they're used in the me- in the news media and law enforcement media. And there's some stuff that's kind of light and entertaining, entertaining and there's also some really disturbing things about it as yeah, well. My working title today was Police Pursuits, Why We Love Them, But We Shouldn't. Yeah, I think that sums it up. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's for all of the sort of, I mean, it's it's some interesting stuff that comes out for people around this particular subject. But we're going to touch on those. Yeah, so, and I think we need to be mindful that uh, this might not be everyone's experience in a sense, and it's kind of cool to bring this to them because this really is a very LA thing. Not that it's the only place where this happens or is problematic. But every article, sort of pop article that I pulled was about Los Angeles. Yeah. Very specific. But um, we're we're coming to you um, at a place where it's around us all the time and we see it. So we kind of get lost in that and get wrapped up in the entertainment value of it. Um, but I know for me... And a lot of our listeners know this, especially if you follow on social media, that I pursuits are just my thing. And I don't know if that comes from having worked in the job and done that. And I know what it's like to sit in the car and do that. Or if it's because when I was a kid, Chips was like my favorite television yeah. show. <laughs> but it's it's um it's interesting. We have so lately, it got, especially with coronavirus, it feels like there have been so many high-speed police pursuits. And I don't know if it's because we're all home sort of watching, but also the freeways for months were wide open. Wide open. Yeah. Compared to what they usually are. So it's just a lot of, and also, you know, as I've like, so I've had in the last four and a half months, there's been three periods where 
I've been redeployed home to telecommute mm-hmm. um, just for the department I work for, having very strict rules about either possible exposure or no, you can't do this, or everybody's working from home this week. And it's like a day-to-day situation. It's like you never know what to expect. But what I have found is that now going back to work, even though LA is cautiously opening and then pulling back and then opening a little bit, is that the crazy drivers are absolutely freaking crazy. Oh yeah, it's like a free-for-all right now. Yeah, it's a free-for-all. I mean, it's, it's, it's such... It's such psychopathy. It's like those videos you see of like drivers in Russia or something, you know, like all those viral videos, just cutting people off, cutting people off with like literal inches in front of the car behind them going 75 miles an hour. I mean, it's, it's just a daily occurrence. I see it every afternoon when I'm driving home more so in the afternoon than in the morning. Yeah. So if you follow us on Facebook, you have, may or may not have been notified of one of our uh, Facebook watch parties that I have done when there is a live police pursuit happening. Of course, the news networks will have the helicopter footage live, streaming live on Facebook, and then I can turn that into a watch party. So if you're following LA Notes Not So Confidential, you'll see a notification, and then we can all sort of watch it in real time and comment about what's happening. It's been so Inception-like before that one time I started one when I was sitting at my desk at work typing some notes, and then I had the police radio, handheld radio, on my desk and was listening to the the footage, or not the footage, the air traffic. Wow. And then it went by on the freeway, like literally behind my office. It was very surreal. Yeah, but Shiloh, you've also been in them. Like, what what is that like when you were law enforcement? You you did that, right? Yeah. So for the little city that I worked for, I would say I averaged about one pursuit a year. So, and it's a big deal. It, it really is, especially for a smaller town. Um, you know, you're generally pursuing people that have committed, allegedly committed, uh, violent crimes or serious crimes. And we'll get into how pursuits are initiated and determined and all of that. Um, it was so exciting and so thrilling. And when you're in a pursuit, the, there's usually the, the, the officer. So we, we were just in one man cars. We didn't ride with partners. So the first, the officer that's first initiates the pursuit is the primary. That's the person that's driving behind the suspect. And then the next one is the secondary. And what happens is that the primary is just supposed to concentrate on the suspect's vehicle and driving. And then the secondary actually calls out all of the radio traffic. So what streets you're turning down, what speed it is, that sort of thing. So the the primary can really just focus because it's a lot to do at once. And I always found it was, for me, being the primary for whatever reason, my adrenaline would go through the roof. But when I was the secondary and I was able to actually do something else, another task, like talk on the radio, it brought me down a little bit. Um, but I, I know as somebody in their early to mid 20s, I was just thinking about how exciting it was. And then it's how is this going to end? Hopefully, peacefully, hopefully without anybody getting hurt. Um, 
and and wasn't really thinking through all the things that I do now, of course, and in, in doing this research. Um, so it's it's interesting to look at what it does to the physiology of the body. Um, but it's it's all I can say is it was very exciting. And once you got in one, it was like we are off and running, and here we go. My first pursuit was actually my very last night of training, which also ended up turning into my first shooting. So it was like wow. all of this stuff within wow, you know, an huge. hour or so. So, um, wow, but yeah. talk about physiology stuff. Yeah, oh, you were, God. you're squirting cortisol all over the place. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, there's, I've had long pursuits and short pursuits, and pursuits have gone to other cities. All of mine ended without anybody ever getting hurt. Thank goodness. Um, because we are going to talk about those statistics, but it's, it's very exciting. You get very wrapped up in the moment, which can absolutely be dangerous. Yeah. So I mean, just heading forward from what you were saying, we were, I wasn't sure that there was actually any research on this and you found a great article, um, by the fine law firm that was posted on the FBI website and in the, in one of the FBI e-zines, and they they broke down the numbers unbelievably. Um, they're looking at between 2014 to 2018, there were 1,699 fatal crashes involving police chases, and that killed at least 2,005 people. Um, 1,123 were not the driver of the fleeing vehicle. So among those killed were 882 fleeing drivers. 337 fleeing vehicle passengers, 21 police officers, and 765 bystanders, which was occupants of uninvolved vehicles or non-motorists, 75 non-motorists, 67 pedestrians, five bicyclists, and then three uh, on other means of uh, transportation. And the the really, really crazy thing is that there was a... even just over the period of this study, so this is four years, um, they saw a huge increase in the number of deaths. So there were 386 in 2014 to 382 in 2015. No, I must have typed that wrong because I know there was there was an increase from the year before. And then it goes up again in 2016 to 394, 416 in 2017, and 427 in 2018. So for such a rare occurrence, the statistical increase is super significant and very concerning. Um, and of those 2,005 people that were killed in the chases, 203 were under the age of 18 and 27 were under the age of 10. Wow. That's yeah. that that's sobering, right? You know, it really, like, really is. I mean, this, this is definitely uh, has me more morally conflicted um, when you hear numbers like this because... I, okay, so I did a poll with our our Patreon members and said basically, how much do you love per- police pursuits? And the the multiple choice answers were meh. Um, what's a fascination? It's my household's national pastime, or they don't really happen here. And most people answered they don't really happen here, or it's my wow. house my household's national pastime. Actually, those tied for first place, which is kind of how I would say that at my house. Um, My husband is like, pursuit is on. And he's saying it because of me. I'm the one that's like, oh, okay, I will sit there and watch it if it goes two hours. 
It's just one of those things. I, I don't now, get it. I uh, don't get it. I mean, like, I it's so interesting to hear that you're fascinated by this because I, it, you know, I'm done within five minutes, and I don't, um, and I don't want to know how it ends either. It's like I just, I just don't want to know. Right, and so I have a friend, Melissa, that um, we worked together, and she's non-law enforcement, but she is in sort of a law enforcement group of friends. Um, and we were both just like self-proclaimed news junkies. Um, and we will text each other whenever there's a pursuit on. And she's the one that taught me how to do the watch parties. But it's just like, it, it's it's watching a live movie. You don't know what's going to happen next. Um, and how is it? Well, how is it going to end on one hand? We know they almost always get caught. But it's also what are going to be the twists and turns you know, leading up to that literally and figuratively, but, but yeah, I, I have now stopped and thought, how is this impacting my kid? Because she's on the couch too now watching. And and there's times that I'm like, okay, okay. Don't look like, look away when, when it looks like things are getting too hairy. Um, but still she's seeing it as a spectator sport in our house. So that's something I'm definitely rethinking after all of our research. So, so maybe this episode is more for me than anybody else. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's my therapy. So let me define a pursuit and then we'll talk about the significance of Los Angeles in this world. But essentially a pursuit is an event involving one or more law enforcement officers attempting to apprehend a suspect or an actual violator of the law in a motor vehicle while the driver is using evasive tactics That can be high-speed driving, driving off of a highway, turning suddenly, driving in a legal manner, but failing to yield to the officer's signal to stop. So the the hallmark really is failure to yield. And sometimes I know when I was a police officer, you would activate your lights and sirens to pull someone over for something. And sometimes it's just grandma who doesn't see or hear the lights. And so for maybe several blocks there, yes, there's a failure to yield, but you need to update dispatch and tell them you're not in pursuit. It's probably just this person doesn't know what's going on um, because there is a whole bunch of policy that fall. If you say I am in pursuit, that sort of kicks off a lot of, um, different aspects of the job and documentation and things that supervisors have to do. So, so the, the failure to yield is, is essential, but we have seen the pursuits here where they are stopping at every single stop sign. They're going the speed limit, but they're not pulling over for the cops. So you can technically do that. And you probably should, if you're going to run from the cops, so you don't rack up all of those infractions (laughs) as well. Um, But most pursuits only last two to six minutes. I had no idea. Isn't that insane? Two to six minutes. That's it. That's all people can do before they freak out and then go ahead and pull over. Well, or I, or they realize like, what am I doing? Exactly. You know, exactly. is that is that when is that when the fight or flight has worn down to a little bit that that reasoning can come back in? Yeah. If you haven't committed by that sixth minute, then you know, you're probably not in it for the long haul. So, but, (laughs) but Los Angeles is a unique phenomenon. You have on one hand, we are a endless sea of freeways. So it is 
really, if, when these go on for hours, one person can go from one end of Southern California to the other and back again and drive in big, massive circles and never leave the freeway. It's interesting because we are also an entertainment capital. So how much is the news sort of feeding on that as something that's going to get viewers to tune in? that if it bleeds, it leads, and it's happening in the moment. It is in real life crime happening. And it breaks into every, if it happens during the day, it's breaking into every single local channel. Absolutely. No matter what the programming is. Not so much at night. You know, right. they won't they won't break into prime time, but they definitely right. break into daytime television. Right, because and every it, every local every local news um, outlet has their own uh, helicopter as well. Oh yeah, which they, is crazy because they those pour are like a ten million dollars. Yeah, a ton of money goes into that, and they have them all on standby twenty four hours a day. Um, and part of that is sort of uh, other unique issues besides the traffic. You know, we have helicopters up all both rush hours. Um, we also have fires here in California that they can cover from the air really well. But pursuits is definitely in that fabric as well. But you know that just the freeways are kind of a way of life. Like I talk about, you know, what a shit storm it was trying to get to your apartment and getting off the freeway and, and traffic in general. I mean, it really does become like that skit on SNL, the Californians. It's real. I mean, we laugh about it. And I think people laugh about it. If you live in other parts of the country, you laugh at it because the actors are so hysterical, but it's our world, you know, like, mm -hmm. Oh wait, how did you, Oh, you shaved 10 minutes off by taking the one thirty four to the two ten. That's really smart. I'll do that. You oh, have to do what? With the accent though. Scott. The, oh, what? You took the one nineteen. You should never take the one nineteen, dude. The four oh five. Four oh five. What was it? Kristen Wiig used to get, I'm drinking some white wine there with California grapes. Oh my gosh. So, so good. I, yeah, really funny. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. There's there's the rest of the people in the country laughing and snickering, but we're getting it on a deeper level because yeah. we are that ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, we, we really can be. Because transportation is like several of the articles that we looked at for research for this talk about sort of you you want to assume that everything here, you know, as big as LA County is, everything's really only about 45 to 50 miles away. You're, you are only 40 miles away from my apartment. But 40 miles, for me, if I was growing up in North Alabama, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll be there in about 45 minutes. I'll be there maybe a little over an hour. That's not what goes on here. It's like no. you don't measure distance in miles. You measure distance in how much time it's going to take you based on what time of day it is because that's yep. how serious our traffic is. Yep. And any of you that have visited, I know it's like, but on a map, it says this. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. it's very spread out. So well, it's just spread out anyway. But the freeways are a part of that. Um, you know, there's also because it happens so often that the commentators, the newscasters can make or break, if you will, uh, a pursuit. It's kind of hilarious to listen to them because yeah. there's so much airtime that they have to fill um, that either they're just saying these silly things or what they do now is they have experts who they will call to call in. They're usually retired police officers who will give a little play-by-play -play of like, okay, so in this this 
you know, situation, police officers are probably thinking this, if we know what the guy's crime is or woman's crime is, you know, this is what they have in their head. They're watching out for weapons. They want to keep a little distance, all of that. Like they, they have their, each station has their go-to expert that I'm sure they just have on speed dial for this. And you were mentioning the helicopters are are always up. I mean, we had kind of have our a bit of our own LA icon in Stu Mundell, who yeah. is the helicopter guy. Um, I pulled up an article and it said, I think it was from Variety, and it said Stu Mundell, famed LA TV helicopter police chase reporter. Like that's how they identify him. He's very animated, very entertaining. You know, he's going to be the guy that, you know, there's a near miss of a crash and he's like, whoa, yeah, did you see that? Like a sports announcer. It's like a sports announcer. It really is. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's easy to get wrapped up into that. And I think it does go to the veneer of Los Angeles. Right. And so to use an example of how that kind of, entered into or brought into or invited into the national vernacular, as it were, basically um, comes out of the O.J. Simpson trial. And so I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're pretty familiar with O.J. It was um, in 1994 on my birthday, uh, June 12th. Wow. Uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and her close friend Ron Goldman were found dead in, in her uh, Brentwood apartment uh, condominium on Bundy Drive. Uh, she is, she was, Nicole Brim, Sound, Brown Simpson was the ex-wife of world-famous football star O.J. Simpson, who was also a TV pitchman and a sometime comedic actor. O.J. was charged with the murders of Nicole and um, Ron but in a jaw-dropping trial that played out on literally worldwide television, a jury later found him not guilty. So this is not a typical car chase like we usually see in Los Angeles. However, it is really considered the number one granddaddy of them all because of how it became a phenomenon unto itself. Right, so, as if it wasn't infamous enough of a case. This is really one of those touchstones. Right. So in the span between June 12th and June 17th, a five-day span, LAPD had basically, uh, or not, the, the DA's office basically said, we're going to charge him with murder. So on... Seven, June 17th, 1984, at 8.30 in the morning, um, OJ's lawyer, Robert Shapiro, received a call from LAPD from the DA's office advising him, hey, um, your client has to surrender. Murder charges have been filed against um, OJ for Nicole and Ron. So by 9.30 a.m., Mr. Shapiro proceeded to a home in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, and he informed OJ hey, you're going to have to surrender by 11 a.m. So that's within 90 minutes. So that's what's going on. Yeah, in the morning, here's what's going to happen. Tell your client, you guys have to surrender. We're giving you that opportunity, essentially, instead of going and arresting him. Exactly, rather than going and sort of, which also has to do with money and wealth and celebrity Celebrity. in Los Angeles, of course. So uh, about two and a half hours later, uh, a little bit after 12 noon, Um, Mr. Shapiro received a call from the DA's office, LAPD. They advised Mr. Shapiro that due to OJ's no-show, that they would have to announce publicly that OJ is a fugitive. So now LAPD is 
proceeding to this location in the valley where Shapiro is holed up. They get there, and it's Mr. Shapiro, um, so two or three of OJ's medical doctors, and some unknown, unidentified others, and they're all sitting in this room looking sort of nervous and not saying anything, not being very evasive. And basically, they finally admit that OJ had left with his friend, Al Cowlings, um, who had been like a, a, a teammate. Teammate, uh, right. In, in his Confidant. early yeah, sports career. I mean, good friend, long-term right. friend. Yeah. So they had left the house. So it's something that doesn't get really talked about enough, but that's also a whole other story is like, wait, so you knew he wasn't coming and you didn't call the police immediately. But then again, he's his attorney. So, you know, he's, and he's also like one of these high powered, very wealthy attorneys. So he's going to kind of do what he wants to do because when you're wealthy, that's what you do, I guess. I will never know that. Um, <laughs> at 1.50 p.m., LAPD announces that Simpson did not surrender as scheduled for that arraignment and the murder charges, and now he is officially a fugitive. So a few minutes later, 2 p.m., Brentwood police recall uh, respond to a 911 call at Nicole's former home as her father exits the residence and he requests assistance, um, which is a little bit odd, like why that's happening after her funeral and stuff. I'm not really sure why that would huh. fit in the timeline, but it was significant. And then at 3 p.m., District Attorney Gil Garcetti, during a news conference, says that anyone assisting Simpson or helping him to flee would be prosecuted as a felon. And here's his quote. We will find Mr. Simpson and bring him to justice. Police are searching for his former teammate, Mr. Cowlings. The prosecutors have not decided whether to seek the death penalty in this case, which I thought was really weird because, okay, dude, I know he's a fugitive, but why would you even say something like that? Like innocent until proven otherwise. Right. Yeah. It's, it was a very weird thing to say. That's an interesting tactic. I wonder if it was sort of to, if they're listening to the broadcast to bring this down and say, look, we're not seeking the death penalty. Like, it doesn't sound like it was like, pleading and talking directly to him but i wonder if that he was advised to throw that in there to make it sound oh. less serious oh kind of a like negotiation si- <laughs> kind of like in silence of the lambs when the senator keeps saying my her daughter daughter's my name. daughter alexander was her name was her alex i can't remember what the girl's name was but she keeps saying her name over and Gosh. over again to yeah. try and create empathy which clearly is not going to work with well um, right Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill, that was it. So 4.45 p.m., local police issue an arrest warrant for Mr. Cowlings. And at a 5 p.m. press conference, uh, the attorney Shapiro holds a... He brings in Robert Cardassian, who's a long-term friend of O.J., and they read a letter allegedly written by O.J., and the letter goes, Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real O.J. and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, O.J. Again, weird. Weird. Um, Yeah, very weird. Very theatrical. Very, very theatrical. And about, oh, it's all about you now, huh? Um, So at 5.51, Simpson allegedly makes a 911 call from a cell phone in his Ford Bronco. And law enforcement's able to trace the signal and find his location on the Santa Ana Freeway, which we call the Five. The Five. Uh, and it's in Orange County near Lake Forest Cemetery. And ale- I, I think that's where Nicole Simpson had been buried in, earlier in the week. Like he had been going by, he was either planning a trip to her grave or going by the cemetery. 
So now the chase starts right before 6 p.m. So CHIP, as you were saying, which is short, that's an acronym for California Highway Patrol, officially begins pursuit. So at 7.30, the Bronco switches from the 91 freeway, which is the Artesia, to go north on the 405, which is the San Diego freeway in Torrance. So they're heading... You sound ridiculous saying all of this. I know it sounds it's like, like, another that, but language. It, like for anybody that's in anybody on the West Coast, you'll understand how important that is. You can automatically picture it. They're now yeah. heading from basically the OC to LA. Yeah, or so Orange County to Los Angeles, and um, and it's announced by by now. It's all over the news. It is like every single news station ha- or, or every station locally and most of the national ones are all going that like OJ is being pursued and he there's a car chase but it's the slowest ass car chase right ever failure to yield remember yeah so but he's on the freeway like it's these like these these press conferences all morning and then like well where is he and then these announcements of being a felon and now here's like what it's come to so it's slow, and but they're not doing any pit maneuvers. They're not trying to drive him off the road. And there are a couple of things that are happening simultaneously that are really, I'll just say that they're interesting because I'm not really sure how I feel about it. Maybe we'll explore this later. That as, you know, the freeways that go through Los Angeles have many, many overpasses. And many of those overpasses, which are streets, also have pedestrian sidewalks that are uh, guarded on each side by chain link fence. Most of them have chain link fence. Some of them don't have anything you could step over and jump off. Um, And those are now all lined with people cheering when he drives by. They're cheering for him. They've got handwritten signs, go OJ, the juice, the juice yep. is on fire, all this stuff that's very sport. People are cheering and cheering and cheering, which is just bizarre because here's this guy charged with an absolutely horrific, horrific murder charge. And to a certain segment of the population, he's become this sort of almost like Wild West outlaw icon that he's he's that he's making everybody chase him. It's yeah. a very interesting phenomenon. But well, he he's got, beloved. They love it no matter what, you know? Yeah. This is their their sports superstar. And they're so, out there cheering like it's they're on the sidelines of a football game. And the entire time, there's been this back and forth of negotiation on the cell phone. There's been a lot of information back and forth with attorneys, with law enforcement. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And at 9.37 p.m., Simpson drives into Parker Center uh, in police custody. So the drive was incredibly slow. He did give himself up. And one of the things that they don't really talk about very much is what was in the truck. And in in his Bronco, there were disguises. There was a fake goatee. There was a fake mustache. There was makeup, adhesives, um, and some pieces of clothing. So he clearly likely had a plan to try and get across the border. For some those of you that aren't in Southern California, yeah, what's that? I said some sort of plan. I don't know if a fake goatee goes a long way, but yeah, for a guy that's like built like a you know like a <laughs> he is a linebacker. You know, he's like a right. huge, huge man with an enormous you know big handsome head. It's like you're not going to be able to disguise that at all, right? So wow, yeah that that was just it, that's what everybody thinks of, and it was such an event here in Los Angeles. I mean, it what what year was this again? Ninety seven. 
No, it was earlier no, than that. It was before. Uh, 1994. Sorry. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I was still in high school. So yeah, 94. Um, just, it, there was also, you know, aside from sort of the, the very short negotiations that were going on, because they weren't on the phone with law enforcement long, um, I think there was reports that he had a handgun in the car as well. So, you know, when you're talking about how they weren't being real intrusive or trying to do pit maneuvers or anything, uh, which we'll talk about that lingo, what that means, but uh, that he was, aside from the note, if he had a gun in the car, they were essentially dealing what they thought was a suicidal person right? and another person in the car. So you have to think of what you know, could he possibly take both of them out or what's happening here? So it was very, very tricky, but just a crazy, crazy scene. But I think that that was, it really leads into the why that we're asking, like, why are people so fascinated by this? And it really comes down to really along the lines of of an, an earlier episode, one of our first episodes about the voyeur motel, about the, the, the pleasure that people can get out of being an observer. Right. And even if you're not pathological, that this is something like you were saying, like your experience, it's like riding a roller coaster along the lines of as well as it being a roller coaster, you're also somewhat detached because you've got this view of being, you know, an eagle eye. Basically, you're in the helicopter with them. You're looking down, you're watching it unfold in front of you. And I think that there's just enough distance when you're in that position that especially if you don't do what you and I do Shiloh is you you have this ability to think that like it's not really that real like it's right. it's grand theft auto i'm just watching a video game and it's not yes. it's actually a real thing happening with people's lives in danger yes you're right it's that juxtaposition of feeling like a voyeur cuz you're far enough away but also oh, I know that freeway and I know where they're at. Like I can place that in my head. So it sort of makes it real. And then for people in those places, like let's say it happens in city center or like East Los Angeles. And and, uh, when they, especially when they get off the freeway and into side streets, like this is my neighborhood or you can hear the helicopters. And um, that have, I have a freeway that runs, behind our house. It's a couple miles away. Well, not even that, maybe a mile away. Um, But I know I can be outside in my backyard. And when I hear more than one helicopter, we're like, okay, fire, because there's foothills behind me or pursuit. And it's how long we can hear the helicopters, because if they come and go, then you know, it's a pursuit. And if they stay, you know, they're hovering for a fire. So it, it, there is this weird connection with helicopters and news happening I'm sure you've seen it. If you've jumped on a freeway and you see a bunch of helicopters hovering, you're like, oh, there's an accident on the freeway. Like you just know because they're all getting footage of it for yeah. rush hour. Um, but it's it's wild. It's unpredictable. You know, there's a sense of what is going to happen next. And it does take you out of your mundane life for a moment. And it was sort of like what we were talking about with um, To Catch a Predator. You know, there's this like, satisfaction of wanting to see something happen in real time that we're already fascinated with like true crime and then okay what's going to happen to the bad guy we all want to see the bad well, guy right and i think I, I can't help but wonder because there's not like a ton of research on this we've got some good research a little bit later coming up from a forensic psychologist but 
much in the way that we enjoy cops, you know, cops chooses incidents and most of the incidents they're dealing with in these smaller law enforcement communities, you already know what the outcome is going to be. You know, the guy is going to be hiding under the kiddie pool or he's going to get caught, you know, right? because he's running out of his trailer shirtless, you know, with his jeans. And you just always know eventually they're going to get the guy, right? Sure. That's kind of what the denouement is going to be for any kind of car pursuit. They're going to catch him. It's going to happen. Like, it's not like there's no place for you to go unless you Thelma and Louise it off Pacific Coast Highway. (laughs) Right. There's no place to go. Like, your cars eventually, yeah, we have thousands of miles of freeway in Southern California, but you're going to run out of gas or somebody's going to block you and you're going to, you know, jump out and try and get over a fence. They're going to catch you. And I think that we, as audience members, as voyeurs, we understand that. Yes. Yes. There's going to be a resolution at some point and we just don't know when or exactly how. Are they going to make a run for it? Are they going to get out and lay down in a prone position on the street and give up? Or are they going to die? And which has happened, you know? That's a very real possibility, right? I'm just not, I think that's one of the things that when I, when I have watched them, that's what I don't, what I have become more aware of is like, oh God, I hope nobody gets hurt. Same. I just yeah. really hope nobody gets hurt. That's that's what my big reaction is. Right, right. So for aside from all of these wild, unpredictable, voyeuristic reasons why we are glued to the television sets, there are some very, very serious concerns and and concerns in the realms of not just dangerousness but responsibility and ethics when it comes to showing this live in real time. And the one question always is, does it encourage 15 minutes of fame? Does it encourage that kind of behavior? And I think that's really interesting um, because, you know, as, as some, some things that we were researching earlier and prepping for this, we can think of specific pursuits sometimes, but it's not as if we know the person associated with it, except for OJ. We don't know anyone's name, but what do you think? I mean, do you think that they're like in their neighborhood? They're like, oh, yeah, I was that guy. Well, there's this discussion. I mean, we we, we have another couple of articles coming up because this is, became a very big deal in Atlanta actually just this year. That's a very big deal this year. And there was a a lot of controversy between the chief of police and some local uh, politicians and law enforcement that all kind of took different sides saying, well, this is just going to encourage behavior. And my response to that would be, and I'm not saying that I have any stats on this, but encouraging behaviors means that you're laying a groundwork for someone to make an educated and linear decision of, oh, when I get in trouble, I'm just going to floor it and go. When the reality is none of these situations are like that at all. They're all impulse. They're all impulse that something kicks in for some reason, whether it's their own antisocial behavior or a comment or drugs. And we have a lot of meth addicted drivers out here, certainly or someone that just physiologically gets flooded and stops thinking. Yeah. But I don't yeah. think anybody is going huh, pre-planning this. Yeah, I don't think it's really going to matter whether or not I go on a chase or not because big deal. Now we do have one example of that which is we'll come to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, that guy clearly has some problems. It's interesting. There 
in um, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area in 2017, there was a study conducted where they looked at the news coverage of pursuits, and this was in written form. It was sort of after the fact. It wasn't live shooting um, pursuits that were happening. But the ones that they chose to cover disproportionately above and beyond others were pursuits that involved the injury or fatality of anybody, uh, basically officers, fleeing motorists, yeah. or third parties. Um, so again, sort of the it bleeds, it leads after uh, after the situation. But there is something to showing it in real time that news outlets have always not always struggled with, but they do after certain incidents. When something bad happens, they then have to sort of reel back and go, okay, what what are we doing here? And one of those that is another pivotal time here in Los Angeles that we all probably remember was in 1998 when a man by the name of Daniel Jones actually did have some planning behavior of what he was going to do. And this is a man that is at his wits end with how he perceives he was being treated by the healthcare system, specifically HMOs, um, and had gotten to a point where he was suicidal. And this wasn't a pursuit, but it was a very tragic incident that was shown live on the news. Some people might know it because it was actually covered in the film Bowling for Columbine when we talk about individuals' mental health. Daniel Jones was a 40-year-old man who, on this particular afternoon in 1998, parked his truck on a freeway at a major transition loop from one freeway to the other. And he essentially just started pointing a loaded shotgun at other drivers that were going by. So I'm sure there were multiple calls to 911, but then he also called 911 himself. And he said he was upset by the way he'd been treated by the HMO system. He had to wait months to get an appointment. And it turned out that he had cancer and he was also HIV positive. And so very quickly, the CHP shut down the freeways and there was just live news coverage from seven different news networks showing what was going on. And a couple of times he shot the shotgun through the roof and you could see he was in, in his little pickup truck with his dog. And this is what really got people a lot of uh, very upset. But the, the SWAT team from the sheriff's department was essentially setting up, trying to figure out what to do. This guy gets out of the truck. He goes over to the side of the freeway. He throws something off the freeway. Then he gets a big banner that he had written out and gets it out of his truck and spreads it out on the, the em now empty lanes of the freeway. And basically it said, HMOs are in it for the money, live free, love safe or die. I, I remember this. I remember the, it kept sort of blowing up with the wind and then he was trying to put it back down and the news cameras were trying to zoom in to see what it said. But eventually he goes back to his truck, sits in his truck with his dog and lights a Molotov cocktail where he was actually going to set himself on fire, but ends up getting out. He, his clothes are on fire, but then the truck starts burning with the dog inside of it and the dog can't get out. And he had to take off some of his clothing because he was on fire. He goes over to the edge of the freeway again. It really looked like 
he was going to jump. I mean, you can clearly see he's in a lot of psychological pain. And then he goes and retrieves his shotgun from the bed of the truck and ends up taking his life live on television. And this, there was no cutting away. They were. By the way, there's always a five second delay. Well, they're supposed so, to be. <laughs> there, well, right. So I have a, there's been a couple of times that we've seen people take their lives on Southern California television. And that's why we have a five second delay. And I am very suspect of those incidents when it does show. I'm right. very suspect of that. Right, right. Um, this was also happening in the afternoon, which means there was a lot of children's after-school programming that they cut into. So oh, no. lots oh, of children man. viewed this. Um, and the the item he had thrown over the freeway was a, a videotape, and it was a videotaped suicide note, essentially. But it was a big deal. It, it was, you know, it, whether or not it went into rules more strongly about delays, uh, tighter shots, things like that. I know I have seen now where they will pull back out so you can't see things as clearly, especially at the end of pursuits, if it seems like it's going on for a long time and a lot of other police incidents where they don't want it happening in real time so the suspects don't know where officers are at or can't formulate a plan to harm them. That's a big deal in news coverage and in police incidents. But it it was very, very tragic. You know, it was it was a dark time for sort of this news coverage, um, blood sport of covering police-related incidents. Wow. And, it, it, you know, it, I think it has a lot to do with how we look at, at police pursuits. And there was, I know there was another incident in Phoenix in 2007 where two helicopters that were rival news networks, they collided in midair while they were covering a police yeah. chase, killing four people. Um, but even the the police league for LAPD has called for the media not to encourage this, at least not showing it in real time, um, calling out locations which can encourage people to come out of their homes like we see sometimes to high five the person or take a selfie with them. We're starting to see that now as they're cruising down streets while they're being pursued. You know, it it it's sort of that. I don't know, comes back to that 15 minutes of fame, you know, for who? Not just the the suspect, but now maybe people in the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting because we're now we're switching back to the viewer and the voyeur now taking part in, you know, sort of claiming that, uh, claiming their nanosecond of that 15 minutes of fame when that's probably not what's going through the driver's head at all, especially in the example, the extreme example you just gave where this guy was clearly at his wit's end. I mean, and it should be noted that at 1990, in 1998, if you were on an HMO and trying to get care for an HIV infection, you were screwed because not only was there very little medication at that time, um, HIV was still a death sentence and poor guy probably was just not able to, to get his help. I mean, HMOs have really, I mean, I think we should all go to socialized medicine, but that's me. But I will say this, HMOs have come a long way from where they were all that time ago. And there are some, that would never happen now because also Absolutely. we have more advanced medications and we have teletherapy and all sorts of telemedicine and stuff. But it just sounds like he was really at his wits end. And then can you imagine like you're going to take yourself out and you hope, 
somebody is going to take care of your dog for you and you end up accidentally killing your dog. That's I know brutal. it's, it's awful. It really is. Everything altogether there was awful. I remember reading about the two helicopters that crashed that you gave back in uh, the example from 2007 and the last recorded words were OGs. As oh, that one of the uh, pilots was saying, as they were, I just, you know, you can't imagine, especially that's a, like such a nasty way to go. There's no protection. I mean, it's like, like we saw in Kobe's death. I mean, it's just, it's a brutal explosive death. Yes. Um, but we have other examples as well of how badly this can go. In November 2017, a seven-month-old boy and his two-year-old sister were killed in Evansville, Indiana, when a driver just barreled through a stop sign um, while attempting to evade police. And their father, who was the driver of the vehicle that the kids were in, um, also su- uh, suffered really severe uh, trauma to his head and died just a few weeks later. Um, in July 2018 in South Dakota, in uh, Yankton County, uh, a driver, a, a, you know, a driver in pursuit um, crossed over into incoming traffic and collided head on with a, a car. Oh, and then awful. the fleeing driver, his passenger and all four occupants of the Nissan, including the two children, were killed. Um, Tuesday, June 13th, 2006, Anderson Cooper uh covered a really brutal story that happened here in Chico, California, where the Priano family lost their only daughter. And she was just this stellar example of like an all-American kid. I mean, the spark plug of the family was how she was described. And she was uh, like a star student, a star athlete, you know, just beloved by her family, just a, a brilliant young woman. And she was on her way to a basketball game at her school. Uh, her dad, I believe, was driving. She was in the family van with her parents and her brother. And at that time, another 15-year-old girl who had just stolen her mother's van from across town had decided to take one of her friends on a joyride. So the police were pursuing her across town in sort of a slow speed chase. But then for some reason that really has not even been revealed to this day, she floored it through an intersection and she smashed into the Priano's van at the intersection and um, immediately killed uh, Christine. Uh Interestingly, so that 15-year-old girl out for a joyride, you know, probably thinking it was funny. You know, very right. impulsive thing to do. The mother had reported that that she had left with her van, and um, she was tried as a juvenile and did a year in juvenile hall for manslaughter. You know, just it's lives shattered. All lives over the place. absolutely shattered. And then um, a couple of years ago, there was a a woman um, in, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, she was from the. Uh, Upstate, sort of New England area, and for some reason, she was at in the Mar-a-Lago Resort uh, in Florida, and noted to be dancing on the roof of her rental Jeep. And she uh, engaged in a pursuit. She was a an opera singer that said she was there to perform, but clearly, and if you look her up, she's actually, I guess, she was at the time an opera singer for events but um, not on her meds and um, really had a manic episode, went on a a high-speed chase. Interestingly enough, though, this is another example of here's a white woman engaging this behavior, and it's all over the news about, oh, she's mentally ill, she's mentally ill, she's mentally ill, Hmm. as opposed to how they portray some of these other ones. Yeah, definitely. And this is 
you know, whenever somebody is killed, whether it's a bystander or even if it's the suspect, I can tell you after having been involved in conducting some of these debriefings that happened after these critical incidents, that whether it's a bystander or even the bad guy that dies in these situations, police officers are very impacted. They have a lot of trouble psychologically understanding how their role contributed to what happened and are it's a traumatic incident. If someone loses their life, it's a traumatic incident. And to, to understand that you were doing your job, even in the safest manner and suspects veer off and crash into a tree and the car catches fire and everyone burns alive inside is very, very difficult. You know, there's, there's not this like, Oh, well, they're the bad guys. Oh, well, it's, it's really hard on the officers. And so we, we conduct those types of debriefings and follow-up sessions if need be, or if they want it, it's just a really, really hard situation. Um, you know, aside from the ethics and responsibility of, of covering it news wise, of course, there is this dangerousness and as Scott mentioned dangerous for everybody involved and unfortunately it's often the suspects but a close runner-up are just innocent bystanders who are either pedestrians or driving other cars or or you know on the sidewalk somehow and so there is a lot of policy and procedure and study that goes into this from policing and really when a, a pursuit is initiated, and we actually say that it's initiated by the suspect. I mean, the suspect's actions are what initiate a pursuit Absolutely. when they flee. It's balancing the risk with the need to apprehend a dangerous offender. That's always what's happening. And you never know. I mean, it, pulling someone over for something really small and then they take off, that's an assessment that has to be made, right? Like if their registration's expired and they take off, is it going to be one of those two to six minute pursuits that's really quick and then they decide to pull over and then, you know, we take care of whatever the situation is? Are they running because they have a, a reason? You know, that's that's also part of the assessment. Right. But what if and, you don't know? Right. When you don't know, I mean, there's interesting because, you know, as we were prepping for today's episode, there was a... Um, a video that popped up on one of my friend's social media feeds. And it was uh, uh, probably mid-50s to early 60s female in her SUV. She gets pulled over. So you're, it's all body cam footage. And the officer is very polite, and he's giving her a fix-it ticket. And she's super pissed off. And he's and he basically you're kind of coming into the middle of their conversation, and she he's telling her, "Ma'am, you've already received a ticket for this. You never fixed it. That's why we now you have the opportunity to get it fixed for free. You've now expired that. You're going to pay. You're it's going to be eighty dollars." And he hands it to her for signature, and she's. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing. She's really nasty. I mean, she's really nasty to him, and. She says, I'm not going to sign that. You can't do it. I mean, she just gets very entitled, very, mm -hmm. 
Ivanka, as we're calling them now, instead of Karen's. <laughs> oh, um, I didn't know that. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. She gets, she gets very, very entitled and she says, you know, basically screw you. And she rolls up her window and he's trying to open the door and she's like, no. And then she takes off. So now you see him run to his car, get in. He has to chase her, finally forces her over. She still won't. She's cursing up a storm. Um, he gets the door open and has to drag her out. She will not exit the vehicle and he has to tase her. And so, I mean, you know, some of the comments were really fascinating. Like, why did he have to do it? Because she committed a felony. And if you don't, you can absolutely choose not to sign a ticket. But the second you choose not to appear in court, which is what a ticket is, you have to go into custody right then and there and be processed. So if, if, if she had turned to him and said, I'm not going to sign this, that then to him goes, okay, well, then I have to bring you in. I have to arrest you at this moment. That's what the that's law Because that's how is. the law works. Yeah. So it, it so much is about that, that click, that switch over from fix-it ticket to now you have to be arrested. And that's your right. You can choose to see a judge right then and there. Um, but that's the process. And then, yeah, she committed a felony by evading, taking yeah. off. I mean, it's also— I, I, So now she's definitely going to jail. Yeah, she's definitely going to—you know, she's definitely going to be in trouble. And, you know, it's also sort of a—it's a, 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 the spirit of the times that people are getting very divisive and digging their heels in. And I think that it's the undercurrent of fear and pressure that yeah. is making people's worst characterological issues are starting to, this woman may have completely been functional and flying under the radar with a happy life and something's been pissing her off. And now she's acting in this really antisocial entitled way. Oh, you're that, very nice giving her the benefit of the doubt. Well, the, yeah. I mean, but I, yes, the current are you so, well, climate. No, no, no. But then that's a good question for you. Are you saying that even when things weren't so divisive, would we have this many um, you know, well, I don't know how many or if it's you know, changed. older soccer moms acting in this way. Has it? I don't know the data. They may have may have always been that way. It's just oh. not being filmed or being okay. put on the news. So, but yeah, I could tell you I've dealt with them <laughs> um, for the silliest little things. So, but it's just it's it's one of those things of like, you don't know who you're pulling over. It's sort of this guessing game of, I think they call it like the body in the trunk scenario. If you're pulling someone over for a, well, let me give you a perfect example. So the way that Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma city bomber was caught, he was pulled over by a trooper for an expired tag on his license plate. That's right. And this hell of an observer trooper. Everything was going fine. He was polite, but he realized, why is this man wearing earplugs? And Timothy McVeigh still had the earplugs in his ears that he had from leaving the scene of the bombing. And he took a couple of beats, went back to his car, ran his information, and then the dispatcher was able to come back with this incident that had just happened in the time span that it would have taken him to get from point A to point B. So I know that's a very one-off type of example, but there there are traffic stops for little nitpicky bullshit things to, that lead to really big things. Right. Um, right. Whether it's people that are wanted or um, maybe have a body in the trunk 
or who, you know, just murdered dozens and dozens of children in the biggest domestic terrorism incident ever. So it's, it's a lot to weigh. It really is. Um, There's a man by the name of Jeffrey Alpert. He's the leading researcher on police pursuits. He's out of the University of South Carolina. Um, He has been conducting research on high-risk police activities for more than 30 years. And he has a book out. It's pretty recent. It's called Police Pursuit Driving Policy and Research. But this guy, he looks at all sorts of stuff. Use of force. I'm sure I will be researching lots of his stuff in the next several weeks with uh, my new position over at training, uh, new temporary position over at training. But, you know, he really puts it into perspective that this is something you have to constantly weigh because 40% of pursuits end in a crash. And that equals to just about every day in the United States, one person dies as a result of a police pursuit. Wow. And he says, you know, 30% of those, like you said, are innocent bystanders. Um, less than 2% are the deaths of the officer and the majority end up being the people who's in the fleeing vehicle. Um, so the, you know, we, we have policies and procedures for engaging in these pursuits, which means, you know, I think the low death rate of officers shows that they are conducting themselves safely. Um, but if you look at the ways in which police officers die overall in the line of duty, traffic collisions are above and beyond because they're in their cars all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. It outweighs every other felonious type of death or suicide, which is obviously big. Um, But they're in their cars all the time. So it's not always pursuit related, um, but it's the number one killer of, of police officers. So we have very strict rules about when we can initiate pursuits and how we can conduct those. Um, and not just for self-safety, but of course for public safety as well. But, you know, Dr. Alpert says this has been with America since the Wild West. A guy robs a bank and runs away on his horse and the sheriff gets on his horse and pursues him. It's it's sort of always been a part of our history. And I think that's a really interesting way to look on that. Um, but... I can tell you there's a lot of of money and research that goes into looking at police pursuits. I think it will probably be one of the things that is also looked at again when we talk about police policy and police reform. Um, back in the two in actually in 2000, the International Association of Chiefs of Police began the pursuit. Uh, police pursuit data project, database project. So they have like over 7,000 pursuits in a database and they're intent on running studies with that. Um, The National Institute of Justice's Office of Science and Technology has a whole pursuit management task force to examine. So clearly this is a problem. They're recognizing this has been a problem. Yeah, I I think problematic, but also just one of those high risk, it's, there's probably just as many you know, interest and research being done in things like police shootings and, um, you know, crisis negotiations, things that are really high risk. That's what's going to impact people's lives the most, you know, whether it's death or whether it's, you know, liability to departments, huge money payouts, you know, finances go a long way in speaking about what gets researched as well. So, um, but there, how officers train is, is, very strategic, and there's a lot of guidelines. Um, Here in California, 
annually, you know, you have your initial, um, we call it EVOC, Emergency Vehicle Operations Course Training in the Academy, which is like the best few days of training because you're just doing pursuit training. You are driving in simulated weather. Um, it basically, we went out when I was in it, we, we would do it out at the fairgrounds in LA County and they would yeah. set up courses and you do pursuit training. You do, my favorite is they have, you're at a dead stop. And then in front of you, you have three traffic signals, probably about, I don't know, 50 yards in front of you. And all the signals are turned to red and you have to gun it from a dead stop. And then at the last moment, one of those turns green and you have to drive into the, whichever lane that is. Wow. So it's simulating being in a pursuit and missing somebody or missing a crash or something like that that oh, you're not no anticipating. Idea. It is so much fun. <laughs> it's <laughs> the best. I love that. Um, you also drive in these big, huge, they call them skid pans where they put down soapy water. And so it's like, you know, when your, your brakes lock up, when you're driving in the rain, it's a lot of fun. But aside from like that initial one where you do all of that, you have to then, um, every year get some sort of annual training. Um, the first laws and legislation passed to create guidelines were, in the 90s to really make it more streamlined for all the agencies. But then in 2005, they expanded that to ensure even better, more proper training. And specifically, they ended up under Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was our governor at the time, putting pursuits under qualified immunity. So I know qualified immunity is also a hot topic right now. And Very hot topic right don't now. Don't want to go yeah. down that rabbit hole, yep. but... <laughs> Essentially, it means that, um, you know, if, if someone is injured or dies as a result of a police pursuit, you don't sue that officer that was driving. You can then civilly sue the department. So if you think about qualified immunity, like if you were to get a cup of hot coffee at McDonald's and it burned you, you wouldn't sue the person who handed you the coffee, the employee, you would sue McDonald's. So the, it takes the individual liability away. Plus you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. You're probably, if you're looking for monetary compensation, you're going to get that out of a company or out of an entity. And then it allows officers to engage in those parts of their job that may risk other people's lives, like officer-involved shootings or pursuits that have to be a part of their job. But there is what the balance test where I was talking about, you're constantly doing this assessment and it's an on, the balance test is an ongoing decision process to analyze the risk of starting a pursuit, continuing it, and or terminating a pursuit. So if the threat to the public or officer safety is greater than the need for immediately apprehending that suspect, then the pursuit needs to either not be started in the first place or needs to be terminated. And okay. if you are ever a person out there, a police officer out there who terminates their own pursuit, your supervisor loves you because it shows how mature you are that you weren't like, I got to get this bad guy. And you actually said, I'm going to make the mature decision here and terminate this pursuit. That is really interesting. I would, I just, that had never occurred to me, but that's, yeah. that's really interesting because it, it means somebody is, you know, using their higher cognitive functioning and executive functioning to pull back from 
you know, the thrill-seeking chemicals that are just coursing through your body. Like, no, this is not the wisest thing to do. Absolutely. Right Absolutely. There's there's that physiology, but then there's also that psychological piece that's like, damn it, no, this person really did something awful. Right, or, they're breaking the you law. Know, it, yeah, and it, it doesn't necessarily, maybe not just the pursuit, but whatever else they did. Um, but there's there's all sorts of policy, like when you go into what's called tracking mode, when you sort of back off, and we see this here in LA where law enforcement, the patrol cars will back off, but the helicopter will continue following. So they're sort of getting radio information of where they're at, but they're not driving high speed. Usually the suspect sort of slows down a little bit as well because they don't see the lights and sirens behind them anymore. Um, there's all sorts of really cool technology that's coming out too. Um, there's this thing called Star Chase. Well, the company is Star Chase, but it's this GPS tracker that shoots out from the front of a police car and launches on the back of the car so they know where it's going. That's like so Batman used. It is totally Batman. Totally I watched Batman. a video of it today over and over again, and I'm like, how often does that thing really stick? Like <laughs> it's supposed to. But then I was reading articles of cops catching these guys when they like backed off and then they finally stopped their car somewhere and then they would all go there and and arrest them yeah remind there's there was one of the examples of all the ones that i was you know gathering for the research for today there was a guy that stole a tesla and it ended up in being a terrible terrible wreck like the car literally split in half he was oh going, god he was going so fast and he turned a corner and like um you know what do you call it? T-boned himself on a right. light post. And, but they knew exactly where the car was because every Tesla is basically connected to the, the AI brain. Like, yes. You know, I mean, even from the beginning, they've had GPS. So I was like, boy, you didn't really research what you were doing, but then right. again, yeah, the newer, dealing... the newer cars can have that system sort of in place. It's like a, like, like a built-in low jack. What we remember yeah. is like the low jack system. Spike strips are still used, although it's incredibly dangerous. There are dozens of law enforcement officers that die every year in this country from deploying spike strips. Wow. Because they, you have to get on the side of the road to throw them out, and they get mm. hit by cars. Oh, that's brutal. It's awful. The PIT, the pursuit intervention technique, which we mentioned way at the top, is essentially this technique where the law enforcement officer will take their patrol car and bump the suspect car and it spins them out. And so then usually they come to a stop or they can surround them easier and then the pursuit's over. There's some other like laser technology for some of the, again, like the newer cars that will shut the system down or cut the fuel supply by basically firing a laser at the car. So there's all, there's all kinds of cool technology coming out. But I think what we'll do here is take a break and then maybe I will tell you um, about one of my pursuits and just how that all went down. Cool. We'll be right back. I also forgot to mention that what law enforcement started doing several years ago was making more calls for service, emergency calls for service, calls that patrol officers would respond to with lights and sirens. So you actually get used to doing it a little bit more. And then when you have to do it, your adrenaline won't go crazy. So like most medical emergencies, we'll, we would respond with our lights and sirens. Um, other types of, of life-threatening situations, 
um, or really serious crimes like domestic violence in progress. They really went through and sort of categorized those. So we would have that code three response, as they call it. Um, so again, like you're just sort of getting used to the the stimuli around you. So that really worked. I mean, I found that, you know, it sort of took away um, feeling like that oh shit factor and then all of your adrenaline going up when you had a pursuit. So you could yeah, think exposure therapy. Yeah, it was great. It's great. Um, so uh, this is just an example of a canceled pursuit. And so in the city that I worked in, we had a 24 hour Walmart. And if you want to know where all the shit happens in the middle of the night, <laughs> it's the Walmart. Of course. Of course. Right. Like tweakers there with their kids at three in the morning, every stolen car in the world ends up at the Walmart at midnight. Um, just like people doing bad stuff in the middle of the night. And um, so I had run a plate in the parking lot. I was just kind of cruising through and I had got a hit on a license plate of a warrant to a male. However, the registered owner was a female. So I thought, okay, I'm going to kind of sit over here and see who comes out of Walmart and gets in that car. So it turns out that actually a man and a woman both come out, um, actually kind of an older woman and a younger man, but he's driving. So I'm thinking, okay, this is probably registered to her, but she's letting him drive. And clearly I have no idea if he's the one that has the warrant attached. Um, but what I do is I, I stop them just as they get on the on-ramp of the freeway. Again, freeway, they could be going anywhere at this point. So I pull them over on the on-ramp. I have a unit that comes and backs me up. I go up to the car. I you know, ask for his driver's license, his registration. They're being very pleasant. She, in fact, is the woman that uh, owns the vehicle and tells me this is her friend. And I know right when I see his driver's license that he's the guy with the warrant. So I tell them, it'll just be a moment. I, I will be right back. I'm going to go back to my car and run your stuff. Just hang tight. And so I literally have all of their paperwork and information. And so I'm back at the trunk of my car and I'm telling my partner, like, this guy has a warrant. We're going to get him out of the car. We'll take him into custody. We'll call the other agency that he has a warrant with and see if they want him. So sometimes if it was really small, they're like, nah, just write him a ticket or whatever. <laughs> so we're standing back there kind of like, you know, giving it a couple beats while we're coming up with our plan. And all of a sudden, this little tiny piece of shit car just floors it. And I just remember looking at my partner like, is this happening? Because I know who he is. I have his license in my hand. <laughs> and we look at each other like, oh, shit. And then we jump in our cars. And this guy, it was like a little cabriolet or something, you know, a little hatchback. I don't know why I remember that. But they, they are Well, because hauling... it's imprinted on your brain because it was such a significant event, right? That's I mean, I'm right, sure. Dr. Scott. Of course. <laughs> of course. Um, but he is hauling ass and it's the middle of the night, but like, I feel like this car is just going to fly off the side of the freeway. And, and of course we're putting out the, um, you know, the speed and everything. And basically my Sergeant, you know, from sitting in the station gets on the radio and says, look, 
we have this guy's identity. He's going way too fast. You need to terminate the pursuit. And so it, it was the right call yeah, um, for sure, because we know who he is and we'll catch him next time. Like there was a warrant, but he still has a warrant. And now we'll, we'll, we'll tell the DA to also charge him with fleeing. So um, I was very happy though, because they got off the freeway in a neighboring city, which actually happens to be the agency that my husband works for. And I think he was working that night and I called him and I'm like, Hey, I had a pursuit and this is what the car is. And they actually ended up finding the car and catching the guy. So <laughs> I guess he didn't want to mess with their agency, but, um, <laughs> it was, it was just one of those like, Oh shit moments. I remember looking at my partner. We're just like, really, is this happening? All right, let's go play. Got in. But so um, my nice. version is on the other side. <gasps> Tell me everything. Well, it's the dumbest story ever, but when I was in high school and I was doing like, I wasn't, you know, I was doing, I was like in every thing I could possibly be involved in. I mean, I was in theater, I was in, you know, all sorts of clubs and stuff. And I was doing community theater and like, I just, you know, it was like the quirkiest, most wonderful group of people that were like, were straight out of waiting for Guffman. I mean, the small North Alabama town, where nothing ever happens, really. Nothing ever happened um, growing up. This is the up nerdiest there. story already. I know. So, <laughs> and I'm blanking on their names because they were the coolest, quirkiest sisters. One was named Maria. And I can't remember her sister's name. They were both lovely and hilarious. And I hung out with them a lot because we did a couple of summer shows together. I think it was like a during a like Bye Bye Birdie or something we were doing. And... There was this like, okay, so the town I grew up in has this little downtown that's like really cute and adorable. It looks like almost kind of like Mayberry in a way. It's like a little town square. And of course, because this is way before there were apps and, you know, we had like one dinky little gay bar in town. You would, if you were cruising, if you were looking to pick somebody up, you would cruise the square. And of course, I was too young to really understand. I mean, I kind of knew what was going on. And certainly... Maria and her sister knew because they were older than me. They they knew the score. <laughs> oh, let's go downtown. So we're in there like, God, Chevy Nova. I mean, it was some tin can terrible car. And this guy starts following us. And he, it's like in some crappy car. And Maria goes, fuck him. I'm getting out of here. And she just slams on. So like we're in this like small southern town everything is shut down on the town square where the and right outside the town square is like high-end residential like literally antebellum homes i mean it's crazy and we're driving we're terrified to the point where she's taking turns so quickly that we're on on two wheels oh my god this is like dazed and confused or something yeah it was totally like that it was totally like that and then finally oh clear actually the funny thing was we finally the guy like cuts us off and (laughs) maria and her sister are screaming crying sobbing because this guy in like a torn sleeveless t-shirt looking a lot like Matthew McConaughey in Dazed and Confused. Totally like, you know, gross, wispy mustache and nasty hair. And the guy comes up and he puts his badge against the window. And what he was doing, he was like vice. He was trying to catch people cruising downtown. Oh my God. You got to see my face right now. My jaw is like... It was really... I completely forgot about this until tonight. And uh, 
Maria starts screaming at him, why were you chasing us? And then he loses it. He goes, well, why were you driving away from me? And it, <laughs> I, it was just the most surreal thing. And he was like some undercover cop that was, you know, local vice. I think they ended up going out. Like after it was all said and done, they oh, exchanged numbers and went I out or see. something. Yeah. <laughs> so he picked her up. Wink, wink. Oh, I had to. I no, had, no, it was it was Maria and Anita. Anita and Maria Wilkie. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to now. I'm gonna have to look them up and see if they remember. My well, friend how do you Lisa not remember just texted that? me. West Side Story. Hello. I know. I know. <laughs> I should have known that. But that that's one of those things that we consider in assessing in the balance test because. In undercover cars, there is the notion that they might not understand that this is a police car chasing them, you know, depending. Yeah. And so if you have someone that is not in a black and white car, who is not in a uniform, that may register differently for somebody who's fleeing. Right. Just to consider. But. So, but getting back onto the more, the more serious parts, um, I had touched on this earlier that in January of this year, uh, the chief of police of Atlanta, Chief Erica Shields, announced that they would no longer be approving uh, pursuits. And this was after two months previous. So November, December of 2019, several people were killed due to police pursuits. And she she's quoted as saying an overwhelming number of crimes are committed where a vehicle is involved and that significant arrests often show follow zeroing in on a specific vehicle. And so she just she made a really great call. She said the judicial system is broken um, and made the observation saying that like she was making a connection, which like she probably needs some stats to back it up, but it sounds like there were low-level repeat offenders that were released, right. and these were the ones that were indicated as being involved in these pursuits. So it's cl clearly low-level criminals that are not the sharpest knives in the drawer anyway, and right. probably not making really great decisions. Um, she got criticized. It ended up being a, like a, a big political to-do uh, for them. But I think it was the right call. And, you know, we had one here in 2016, which was kind of crazy because um, it went, it was after a rainstorm. So it basically hardly ever rains in California, except for like two and a half months that we have. If we have rain, it's intense. And it's not just rain. It's like literally buckets just falling out right. of the sky and nobody knows how to drive no one no one in la morons. fight me i'm telling you fight me on right. this one nobody fucking knows how to drive in the rain in la and what's even worse is that we go for such long periods where there is no rain all of this terrible buildup of grease and dirt is on the road so when we do get a rain it loosens all that crap up and it makes it even more dangerous and of course, we have all these idiots who like drive faster because it's like they're trying to escape the rain, like it's going to melt their car or something. It's just ridiculous. So anyway, um, in 2016, there was a 20-year-old male, Herschel Reynolds, and he had an unbelievably wild, irresponsible ride through all of Los Angeles. But what made this different was it was like something out of a movie because he was performing all sorts of skill maneuvers that were clearly, and they were saying this on the news, this is clearly someone who has been trained as a driver. Right. And he was doing it on slick streets. And then finally, like first it went from outside of Hollywood proper and then went through 
Hollywood, sort of the sort of the the known tourist destinations, which is always crowded with people, day, night, rain. Yeah, drive, like where the, the Hollywood Walk of Fame is. The Walk of Fame, exactly, yeah. in Man's Theater. Um, it went up into the Hollywood Hills, which is incredibly dangerous. He was plowing through stop signs, and the Hollywood Hills is like a maze of of i mean there's it's hard enough to drive up there yep. let alone going so fast he drove through a pro- opposing traffic he took lanes around blind blind curves he uh just narrowly missed oncoming traffic a number of times and he fishtailed purposely on rain slicked roads and he ended up at the end of it doing donuts in the middle of the street while his passenger stood up and did dance moves. It was a convertible, right? Yeah, it was a, well, it would look like they had tried to close it, but they couldn't get it to close all the way. So it was a Mustang with um, the convertible top halfway done. So they take the guys in without a use of force, which was great, you know, no use of force. Luckily, no one was hurt. It turns out that Mr. Reynolds was trained by the Marines. He had been a private for two years in the U.S. Marines. He was trained as a tactical driver, clearly took the training very well, and was gifted at it, but then was prematurely discharged from the military in January 2016 um, with an official statement from the Pentagon saying, quote, Reynolds' premature discharge and rank are indicative of the fact that the character of his service was incongruent with Marine Corps' expectations and standards, Mm. which is a really, close quote, which is a really nice way of saying he was a jackass that did whatever he wanted to do. He didn't follow the rules, and he's a hothead, and he's not. Right. You know, in the Marines, you tow the line. I mean, with most old military, you know, you tow the line. That's the expectation. Right, and so, for them to make a statement saying, yeah, that's this a is big why deal. that's big. I mean, what's interesting is that his neighborhood thought of him and his friend as just like the nicest, most calm guys. It's like somebody does something incredibly violent and the neighbors go, oh, he was such a nice guy. So because quiet. This, yeah, because this guy really had a background. I mean, he had had his driver's license suspended twice and had, I think, three speeding tickets between 2013 and 2015. Um, he had been charged with reckless driving the previous year, uh, even though he was well liked in his community. And of course, four months later, no, four months later, two months later, uh, once again, he was involved in another uh, incident and they arrested him on susp- suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon and misdemeanor hit and run. Jeez. You know, clearly, this is an impulsive individual that was, I mean, he was enjoying it. He was really. Yeah, I think this is one of the ones where people were coming out of their homes and taking selfies with them and all of that. And then they just kind of pulled over and waited for the cops to catch up with them. There are a lot of things that can happen or that can be present that will contribute to an individual who engages in this behavior. A lot of it has to do with, like, one that would be a complete sort of category unto itself is people that are under the influence of drugs. Right. And to me, it's interesting because there have been times when I've watched a few chases that have come on, you know, during the day. Because the cops I'm working with, the minute there's a chase, they're putting it on all of the screens. Everybody's watching it. Oh, you're so lucky. I wish there were screens in my office. Oh, my God. They're everywhere. It's (laughs) massive screens. They have, like, donuts in their mouth watching and eating, right? (laughs) But when, when you watch, like, there's been ones where you go, to me, there's a clear indication when somebody is tweaking. Oh, yeah. Because you can tell by the style of their driving that they're tweaking. And it's interesting because 
it seems to me the ones I've seen is that they don't run. It's there's the guys run when their car stops, they jump out, they'll run any direction. They totally look like they're on meth. Their shirt's usually off. But if the woman is driving and she's on meth, she stays in the car and gets yanked out by the police. Yep. I'm yep. making a huge generalization, that is so funny. but that's what I've noticed. But Scott's typologies that's typologies of fleeing suspects. So I think that drug, I mean, that sort of is in and unto itself a specific category involved in this. And then I think as in the sort of in the example of Mr. Reynolds, there's impulsivity and there's entitlement and there's sort of some character. What I would say, like when we talked about conduct disorder, mm-hmm. where it's sort of these ASPD flavors where the rules don't really apply to me because it doesn't matter how nice of a guy you are in your neighborhood driving 60 miles an hour down to rain slicked roads with literally thousands of tourists. You know, he could have killed any number of people. Yep. So uh, from that FBI article, which we will post a link to in our notes, um, Dr. Pamela Perez, she's a PhD neuropsychologist. She has a great quote about this regarding the impulsivity that we're talking about. And she says, fear clearly impairs decision-making. It causes us to fight, fly, or freeze. We lose our capacity to think clearly and rationally. We become reactive. Fear changes our perceptions of what is happening around us. We lose the ability to regulate our other emotions as well. We become more impulsive and often act inappropriately as a result. So for our listeners today, your takeaway from today's episode is that's not just about, that statement does not just apply to uh, car chases. It applies to all of us when we're in a bad space and when we are, when we're afraid, all of those things are kicking in. So she really feels very strongly based on the research that she did that a lot of the individuals involved in these behaviors clearly have faulty beliefs about their rights. So they then jump immediately in this fear position and this need to run of, well, I didn't do anything wrong, or I didn't do anything that wrong, or I got to get away from here and figure out what I'm going to do. So they and have, that's what we hear from suspects after foot chases as well. Say more about that. Well, when when you finally catch someone, the first thing that comes out of a cop's mouth, and I think it's because of adrenaline and what just happened, we always ask, why did you run, man? And they'll say, because I'm scared or because, <laughs> because well, you were chasing me. And then it's like, you know, you as a cop, you stop for a second. You're like, well, no shit because of this crime. But this is so interesting. It's more it primitive sense. than that. Right. right. It goes to very primitive. If a saber-toothed tiger was chasing you, you'd run as well. Right. You know, I mean, so and Perez makes a statement about that. Clearly, there are citizens of our culture that due to their cultural or racial background could be motivated or spurred into fear because of their previous experience with law enforcement or their anticipated interaction with law enforcement based on what they've seen happen to the people around them, which is basically what's going on right now. Right. I mean, that's the big debate in these debates about like police excessive use of force. And that's that's the back and forth that needs to be heard by both. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. Because it, it it makes you know there's such a clear cut um thought in the cop's head of like bad guy did bad thing has to go to jail. And then it's like, well shit, why are you running if 
if you know that you have to go to jail and it's like, well, not everyone plays by the rules one and right. two, this is some of the, the psych psychological and physiological stuff going on. Yeah. She, um, Dr. Perez offered this perspective on the other side regarding law enforcement. And she says, you know, look, that the duty of law enforcement is to protect and serve. And that means catching criminals and keeping the public safe. So if somebody runs, there's the immediate assumption that is made very rapidly, like you talked about, Shiloh, that there's a reason that they're running. And then she said, and this is based on interviews that she did with law enforcement, is that police officers tend to take it personally when someone runs from them, when in actuality, the person in question is probably running from the police and not the officer, him or herself. Of course. Which I think is a great, Duh. that's yeah. really great. So, um she says that police officers hyper-focus on their target and then completely sometimes um, miss the innocent bystanders and potential safety risks, which I think goes back to your assertion of, like, why the higher-ups really appreciate when somebody is yes. able to back away and reevaluate re the situation. And, no, this person's let them go 60 miles an hour down some road. We'll find them another way. The helicopter's always going to find them. Right. You know? Right. But there's there's a physiological reaction happening in the police officers as well that it is scary. You know, I, I've used terms like exciting, but it's also terrifying. And, I'm and so Scott's sorry. watch my does watch, not understand what's happening. That was weird because my watch basically just transcribed about five minutes of what I said. So oh, everybody's Jesus. listening. Will you text that to me? No. <laughs> Um, but there, there's those physiological reactions happening in the officers as well. And a lot of what we call perceptual distortions. So that tunnel vision yes. is totally one of them. And that's why you need a secondary and a supervisor to also be your other set of eyes. Have you ears. had that time dilation experience? Have you ever been in a wreck? Oh, um, no, not in like a traffic accident situation. Because that's, that's the only time that I've ever had it was I was driving on an icy road in college and I spun out on the ice and we were spinning out really, really quick, but it felt like it was in slow motion. I mean, to this, to this day, decades later, I can remember exactly what that felt like. And it just felt like it was probably maybe 10 seconds tops and it felt like a really long time. Wow. No, I only had that during my shootings. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mine's nothing. Mine anyway, was no, not at all. <laughs> They're both life-threatening situations. <laughs> but no, what? I'm so glad you found information about the sus. We know what's going through the suspect's head in, in from research. That's just it. Feels like the cherry on top of all of this. Yeah, I think that she. I thought. I think Dr. Perez really put it together. I'm so glad that we found that particular research because it went along with a lot of my assumptions, but you know, as we want to be competent professionals and make sure that we're not talking out of our ass. <laughs> right, right. Wow. This is great. This is a good 50th. It, I, it was a good 50th. Before we end, I do want to start, I'm going to start doing something and I hope I can make this a habit is that, you know, we do so much research and we want people to be able to access the great articles and stuff that we look at, which is always on our webpage. But I'd like to name the authors involved um, in the various uh, LA Times, BBC News, USA Today, um, Jason Garacio, Denny Jensen, Morgan James, Hannah Morse, Richard Winton, Joseph Serna, 
W.J. Hennigan, Jeffrey Alpert, and of course, Dr. Perez. Um, this, yeah. this is all very valuable information that was contributing to this episode. Indeed. So we will, um, of course, the Saturday following this episode, we will have a Get Vocal session. And we actually have some old friends joining us. We have Tammy and Bryce from Hollyweird Paranormal. And we are all going to be reunited. You may recall many moons ago that we did a crossover episode on The Exorcist. And they have a true crime uh, paranormal podcast. And they're wonderful friends of ours. And we are going to sort of revisit one of our old topics and talk paranormal stuff. So it should be a lot of fun. Please, please join us. Put the word out. We are having the Get Vocal episodes themselves are starting to expand. We participate in our our parent network. Crawl Space Media has one uh, every week as well. And our audiences are just growing. It's an incredible interactive experience. Um, please, you know, it's a way to engage with us. It's a quick 50 minutes or it's a quick hour is what it is. It goes so uh -huh. quickly. Um, and as our uh, Patreon members, you get free access to that as long as, uh, as well as some uh, swag. Yes. So we should also have our challenge coins up on our website very soon for purchase. Those are in. And we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to buy this first batch. So who knows? Maybe we will do um, yearly ones and they'll be actually, you know, more collectible as it goes on and have different artwork. But you definitely want this, this initial batch of LA Not So Confidential Challenge Coins. That's right. Be one of the first purchasers and be one of the people that starts the trend for true crime podcast challenge coins. It's going to yes. be cool. All right, everyone. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, Stay care. safe. Bye.